Hey there, Pulsing Black listeners. Welcome back to another installment of this podcast. Today, I am so excited. We are celebrating intercultural Black marriages. And so with me today are my good friends, Rachelle McKissick-Harris and Bianca Mastefiade. Beautiful. So welcome, ladies. Welcome to this episode of Pulsing Black. And we're just going to start with a little bit of introductions because the Blackness that is represented here today is just beautiful. So Rochelle, if you'd go first, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up and how that journey shaped your Black identity to date. Okay. Um, so hi, everybody. Uh, again, I'm Rachelle, and I'm just super excited to be here. Um, so a little bit about my background is that I was raised in Saginaw, Michigan, uh, which is on the east side of the state. It's a small city that uh, predominantly was run by Dow and the plants. Uh, so that's kind of unique to us. My background is in childcare. Uh, I work in the education field. So I have a bachelor's degree in childcare and family education. And I'm currently finishing a specialization from the University of Colorado in Boulder for teachers' social emotional learning. So super excited about that. How did Saginaw shape my a black identity. It did it in many ways. Um, and so Saginaw is kind of like a, it, it, it's pretty much like a culturally blended city, but at the same time yet divided. And so there's uh, the Saginaw River that runs between the city. And that was kind of like the defining line back in the day of uh, black people were on uh, the east side of the bridge and white people were on the west side of the bridge. And only if you went to school on the other side of the river were you really blended with uh, white people. And so uh, my parents were really intentional in making sure that we stayed in culturally blended uh, situations so that we would be able to learn our identity as Black people and what that would mean to us. Saginaw right now is declared one of the seven most dangerous cities in the country, but yet to us, it never felt that way. Um, We used to have African American Heritage Week. And so uh, it was like a cultural festival that anybody could go to and they would have music and African art that you could purchase and skin products and all those kinds of things that were geared toward us. And so we used to go every year um, and it would be jam packed strollers everywhere, music going, all different kinds of cultural music would be playing. And so uh, that was one thing that uh, helped build my identity. And then my parents were just really intentional. My father was dead serious that every year in February, we were watching Roots. <laughs> and I was the one who like took a whole lot of trips to the bathroom every time somebody was about to get beat because I just did I couldn't handle it but now doing the work that I do and working trying to push social justice and in early childhood and equity and things like that for our low-income families and things it, I understand it now wow thank you Rachelle who roots so you must have watched that so many times that I don't watch it now as an adult. Oh, wow. (laughs) Do you subject your children to it? We have not had the boys watch Roots, uh, but like me and my sisters, we still make jokes about uh, Tiffany George and (laughs) some of the characters. That is hilarious. Bianca, hey sis, tell us a little bit more about your background, where you grew up and how that experience shaped your identity of Blackness. All right, awesome. So um, I was born and raised in the Midwest, Grand Rapids, Michigan. My mother is from the South Missouri, 
and my father is from Kenya, <laughs> East yes. Africa. Um, so, but I was raised predominantly, predominantly in the um, African American culture. Uh, my mom and father split before I was born, and so I was kind of raised by my mom, um, my great aunt, and my grandmother, who mm -hmm. all grew up in the Jim Crow South, and then wow. migrated to Michigan. So just a little bit of background about Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a very um, segregated city. So growing up, I could tell like, okay, on this side of the street, from this boundary to that boundary, that's the Hispanic neighborhood. From that boundary to that boundary, that is um, the white neighborhood. I remember, so I grew up on the Southeast side. So mm -hmm. that was a predominantly black neighborhood. And we kind of have like our own little bubble, our own little culture going on there. And so I remember um we would drive into ride our bikes into a place called like east town as wow. soon as we passed a certain board we had got pulled over by a police officer and we're like you know what is going on <laughs> wow. and he pulled over he was like once you pass this street once you pass this sign you guys have to have a helmet on so we're not going to give you a ticket now but just kind of walk your back bikes back to the other side to the other part of the, the neighborhood um, back past the sign and then you guys will be fine but once wow. you pass this sign into this predominantly white neighborhood <laughs> you must have a helmet on so I think that was like my first interaction of just distinctly understanding okay something is different here wow and so Grand Rapids is interesting and again that it's segregated and it's a predominantly um, kind of white space in town and I grew up in the southeast side with a grandmother who grew up in the Jim Crow South. She brought all that culture over to us. So we grew up hearing things like, you have to be better than, you know, the, the white person, you have to be two times better. Um, and so just from an early stage, acknowledging and understanding that there was kind of a um, something that had to be proven and you had to work harder to get to a certain place, you know, mm as an African-American. And so I think that that really shaped me, just that understanding that you have to put in work and you have to work hard. One thing that I can say is I feel like, so Grand Rapids, uh, there was an article that came out in Forbes that it was like the one of the best places to raise a family. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> one I of the worst places for Black Americans. So I think I saw a lot of our talent and a lot of people, I know a lot of my friends were like, I'm going to move out of this place. I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to go somewhere and find opportunities in maybe like Atlanta and other places. And so a lot of the city was losing um, the gifts that was within the Black community. But I feel like it's moving to a place now where there's like this movement of social justice, this movement of a lot of millennials and expats from other surrounding places like Flint in Detroit saying like, mm. there's something here. And so there's something to be valued in the people of color and we're going to stand here and we're going to grow our community. Right. And so, yeah, I would say that I was, I was really shaped by the Southeast side of Grand Rapids where I grew up and from a grandmother who brought the culture from the Jim Crow South, just saying that you have to work hard. You have to be right. two times better. So, yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. And it never ceases to amaze me how young, our black children have to process very complex matters on race. And, you know, I was 
looking at Rachelle's facial expression along with mine when you were talking about that conversation with the police officers. And as a child, where do you take that? Like, what do you do with that, right? And how does it shape not only your view of law enforcement, but the, your view perception of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's mm -hmm. that internalized bias that you develop about yourself that you're different and not in a good way. So although our mm -hmm. parents are always very intentional in nurturing us to appreciate our gifts, even if they're different and unique, the world is telling you you're unique, but not in a good way. And how do you constantly find that balance when you're a developing child? You don't even have the life experience to process what that means. So, you know, that, that kind of hurts me and I'm not even a mother, but it hurts me because these are the children in our community. They are our future. And so, you know, Anyway, that's another mental health segment that we will have another time. But getting into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which I cannot wait because, you know, I'm single and I'm trying to learn what y'all know, you married folk. But uh, so tell our listeners where your spouses are from, where they were raised and how you have overcome some cultural barriers within your family or within your marriage. I'm so excited to learn in here. Rachelle, go ahead. Okay, uh, so my husband uh, is from St. Anne Bay, Jamaica. Um, he was raised in the parish of St. Anne in a, a small town called Steertown. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, he was born and raised there. He was raised uh, by his mom and dad for a little bit. And then um, he lived with um, an uncle and some different family members. And um, his uncle's mom uh, took him in and finished uh, raising him at that point. And so uh, I hear it's beautiful. I haven't been yet, but I'm looking okay. to go. I okay. Need to get stamp on my passport. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully, when everything calms down, we'll be able to take a trip, and then I can go and I can um, see his country, see the beauty of it, see where he was raised, and um, you know, walk the streets, not do the tourist stuff, but actually like see his his country from his eyes. Yeah. Um, which I think uh, flows into that question, like what kind of issues and things have we overcome um, when you're marrying and and we We've been married for four years but when you marry somebody who's of a different culture and different background from you like learning is the bulk of what you're going to do it's mm. constantly learning 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 and so um although we are both black like we still have differences and um those differences are what make us unique in our cultural uh aspects and what we can bring to our marriage and right. so um one of the things that we had to overcome was our get-togethers and so mm. we both have like that hosting kind of spirit we're such givers but to an extent I felt like he has surpassed me with the giving heart <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm a, I can testify to that when Kaysen yeah. hosts a party Kaysen hosts a party for real and Rochelle be like what? does this party have a deadline like when people going home <laughs> going home like I'm like are you taking all the food out the kitchen to cook for this like that was one of our biggest things and so like when we have get-togethers in america it's everybody brings a dish everybody participates in the gathering and in his culture it's somebody cooks and they share it with everybody else and like you don't really have to bring anything and so when people would only show up with like um some beer or some wine or some waters or juice for the kids <laughs> i'm like where's your dish to pass like 
come on now. And so um, it was, it created a tension between us because I didn't understand. And um, yes. <laughs> I was getting really frustrated with it. And I'm like, yo, people need to bring something. <laughs> like, <laughs> this how this works in America. You bring it. <laughs> and so um, we just really had to hash it out one day. And he was like, that is not my culture. If right. I come over, then that means I'm going to cook for everybody. I'm, I'm going, going to share to it with everybody. And they don't bring anything. And yes. so I struggled with it for a little while. <laughs> then I finally just had to embrace it because it wasn't going to change. And mm. that was just his heart. And mm. um, when he began to tell me some of the stories of him being in Jamaica and him uh, remembering days of being hungry and things mm. like that, like he never wants anybody to be hungry or to go with their belly not full. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Like that that yeah. I, I gave in my heart and my mind was like, we, we need to, we need to be in agreement on this. And wow. so at that point, that's when I came in agreement with him and I'm like, Hey, okay. Like what dish do you want me to cook? Um, so he, he's a cooker, so he likes to cook all the time. So I, I, I embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was one of the big cultural things that like was, a issue at first but now we've grown to the point where it's like okay we're gonna host something okay what what do you need me to pick up from the store right. or, you know what what do you need me to do to help you in that process wow that's beautiful i mean i have been a beneficiary of of those <laughs> cooking expeditions and i embrace them fully i didn't even know there was a attention i as a guest a frequent guest in her house i i didn't even know there was a problem praise god because i am the one of the community members that loves <laughs> rachel's gatherings she'd be yeah. like girl it's gonna be a jamaican gathering i said what i'm coming i'm coming <laughs> i'm coming i'll be jamaican for three yeah. hours i love it okay so, <laughs> all That's right, wonderful. Bianca, where's your husband from? How long have you been married? What are some cultural uh, barriers y'all have overcome? Awesome. So we have been, we've been together seven years and we've been married coming up on five years in July. Okay. Um, my husband is from Ghana, West Africa. Well, he was born in Togo, which is a country next to Ghana. And wow. then at a young age, they moved to the Volta region of Ghana and then to the central place of Accra. Okay. And yeah, so... I think what really helped me and what I was blessed was I actually met him in Ghana. Okay. And so it was a blessing to be able to experience his culture firsthand. And it really helped our marriage because there are things that, that he would communicate to me that I can understand. I could be like, okay, because you grew up, it's a cultural, right? Yes. So I think that that really helped our relationship and really blessed us that I was able to experience his culture. Some things that we had to overcome. <laughs> he... Oh my! I think communication. Mm. I think that it's very important in a marriage, in a relationship, to know how to communicate with your with your partner. Yeah. And in his culture, a lot of people are very. It's such a communal culture, and a lot of people are very direct in certain mm. comments that they will say. And I think when he came over here, there would be different conversations that he would have with like family or friends like that. It's like once you meet. Once, once you're a family, once you're a friend, we've been together like 30 minutes in a conversation, you're family for life. So <laughs> I'm comfortable. We can have all kinds of conversations. And I was trying to tell him that here in America, honey, you have to work up to that. Um, yes. And so we will be in conversations with people and he would say something. 
And it just would be like, you know, his big heart and in a loving way, and someone would take it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to, I, I found myself explaining to them uh, what my husband was trying to communicate across and where mm-hmm. it was coming from. And it not was, it, it wasn't out of a place of like disrespect or anything like that. And that it actually meant something good and positive. So I think wow. that that was a barrier that we had to work out just learning how to communicate in an American setting, which is a lot different from um, Ghana. Right, right. And I really like that vibe and vine of communication because now I'm wondering, how have both of you been communicating social and racial justice to your Black immigrant husband? So Rachel, you go first. How does that conversation uh, develop in your household and how is your husband actually relating to the matters that we are dealing with right now? now with all the racial tension. Okay. Um so we uh, we really hadn't uh engaged in any of the like social justice kind of stuff um within our within our household until uh the the George Floyd situation. And right. at that point um it kind of just became uh, a open window, I guess yes. you could say, for conversation in our household. We we had already been talking to our oldest son, who's nine, about just um, the way he behaves in school and um, different things like that, and and trying to get him to understand that although you may do this with Jimmy and Paul, mm-hmm. they're not going to be disciplined the same way you're going to be disciplined, um, mm-hmm. just because you're are black and you are right. a black boy and me knowing that the system of education is set up to uh make sure that our black boys are treated differently and are brought down um we kept trying to reinforce that to him and so i get that it's cool and everybody's doing it but you can't do what everybody else does and trying mm-hmm. to get him to understand that there is a difference um and so we started with that conversation and then we pretty much like saw social justice the same. I think more so now he, he at one point he wasn't um, a, a person who wanted to vote. And so I'll, mm. I'll go from that standpoint. And I was like, what is absolutely important and that you vote because it's your only voice to say like how you feel things should move. And right. to him, it was every politician is a liar. And I'm like, to some extent, they have to spin things, you know, but when you get to the core of what they believe and what they're going to stand for, that's how you figure out who you want to vote for. And so it was after like the George Floyd and then uh, the presidential debates and different things that we've been following. And when um, Kamala came out, it was more so like a oh, okay, let me, let me think more about this voting aspect. And Mm -hmm. is this really for me? And so now he's so determined uh, to vote once he gets citizenship in America, that I am ecstatic about it. Um, Mm -hmm. He wants his voice to be heard. He recognizes that it's the only way we can um, try to help shift some stuff is if we use our voice in that way. And so not all the time will the right politician get in the seat, but if we don't speak, then we will never be heard. And just trying to explain to like my son and to my husband, like we didn't have freedom to vote here. Uh, women mm. surely didn't. And um, that came long after um, white women were able to vote, you know, um, black people were able to vote. And so wow. I'm like, it's so many people have died for us to have these opportunities, to have the opportunity to vote, to have the opportunity for good education. 
and things like that, that that's what we've begun to push to our kids. Like education wow. is all you have. It doesn't right. matter to me if you can play a sport well. It doesn't matter to me if you can run fast. Mm. Like that's all great. But without an education, without you being able to read and to write and to understand if they put a contract in front of you, you knowing exactly what that contract means, it makes no difference in what your skills are. And so you need that education first. And that's what we kind of begun to push. Wow. That's powerful. And, and, and just the complexity of how first generation immigrants are citizens of two worlds. So even trying to uh, connect with the politics of the U.S. when they're always consistently in parallel following the politics of their native country and you know those are the experiences that shape their perception of politicians and the political arena and you know we come from you know places that are very corrupt at times and so you know how do you how do you reconcile that um into the new country and culture that you're resettling in. So Bianca, girl, tell us about how in your household, this conversation of racial and social justice has gone and um, what that has looked like. Um, so for us, my my husband, um, he grew up in, in Ghana, West Africa, you know, all his life he spent over there. And so he came, um, you know, freshly, newly over here as an immigrant. And there were certain um, situations that we would be in that he'd ask, that he just kind of noticed a distinct difference between, you know, people of color, African-American people, and then someone else. And so he'd ask me, you know, just very innocently um, and very humbly, um, honey, why is this that way or this that way? And so um, I, I'd break down to him, um, just kind of like the history, give them kind of like a synopsis of African-American history. Um, because although, yes, those slaves, those slave castles sit, you know, on the coast of West Africa, you know, and you go there. And I made it an point every time we are there, every time I was over in Ghana and we're spending time together to take that trip to Cape Coast, um, just to kind of revisit our history and our lineage. Um, and so... Although they're there and we were able to go and get that history, he still couldn't understand the situation of African-Americans, um, just economically, politically, all of the above here in America, because like mm. here in America and everywhere else, we are not given our history. Um, yeah. we're, we're kind of shared the colonizers' um, adoption of history. And so there are many times that we've had to kind of stand. I literally have to give him like some type of synopsis of how things came to be, like we had to talk about slavery, we had to talk about Jim Crow, and convict wow. leasing, and redlining, and really breaking all of that down, and especially there were instances that things that we would run into, like we previously, we just bought a home, and just within, thank you so much, within that process, the, the, the racism and stuff that we oh. ran into along that journey, and then there was a situation where, so well, my husband's job is that it's in like the suburbs of, of GR um, on the outskirts. Okay. And he was on his way to work one morning and he got pulled over for a head a headlight being out. And when he got pulled over, the officer came up and asked for his license and registration. Sure. And then the officer went back to his car. My husband bent over into the, um, the glove compartment 
pulled out his information and got out. And so he got out the car and the police officer started yelling at him to get back in the car and started going towards his gun. And my husband got really frightened and got into the car. Um, thankfully, gratefully, nothing happened. And a police, you know, came over and was yelling, saying, don't ever get out the car and put your hands on the wheel. And well, because of that, after that, after that situation, he called me. He was, he was scared. He really thought that he was about to lose his life in that moment. And that was a mm. teacher moment for us because in Ghana, that's what you do, right? Mm. So when you get pulled over, the police come up and they actually, you know, you get out the car and it's kind of like, you know, a very communal stop. They're part of the community. And that's what you do and you talk it out and you figure it out. And so I think that was an eye opener and a wow. conversation starter um, for the relationship of, of policing here. With, with, you know, Black and brown people and especially our Black men. And so when the George Floyd came up, it was, he was able to make those different connections. Connection. So it's it's definitely been a, um, <laughs> a journey mm. of, of, of education and learning together and from experiences, firsthand experiences. And so I've just been grateful that none of them have West went west and that he's, he's still alive. Wow, we thank God because we hear these uh, horror stories all the time when I was working with refugees. Um, the males, like they really had to talk to them about how to govern themselves when they're having interactions with law enforcement. Because again, if your only reference is where you come from and how you approach the police, that is so different here. And there is no part of the resettlement process that covers these things. If you don't find somebody to tell you, you may have to learn from experience and pray that it is not a really horrible experience. And some people are traumatized. They're really traumatized. Like, why did I get pulled over by four co police co police cars for a broken taillight? Like, why Ooh, did I have absolutely. to be put on the pavement? Why did I, why was I handcuffed, you know? And they start to normalize that and think that that's how all the interactions are. And to think that some of our kids are actually experiencing law enforcement in the schools is also really sad because sometimes it starts really early or, you know, our children are internalizing our experiences as the adults around them as well. So to conclude our segment, what advice would you ladies give anyone in our Black community who is either dating, is married, or raising children in a Black cross-cultural um, household? Rachel? Uh, so I would say um, open communication. You have to have open communication. And I, I mean, um, like my sister said, like learning uh, how to communicate with them, like what is their communication style and being able to communicate um, in that way. You both have to be willing to learn, willing to mm -hmm. learn the other person's culture um, and not just in a superficial way, but really mm -hmm. being able to learn about the cultures of each other and being open to accepting it and open to changing some of the ways that you do things. If you really want the relationship uh, to work, you gotta figure out what makes them unique, what things can you share that are similar, and then what things are you going to create new within mm. your relationship? How are you going to blend your lives together and um, especially if there's children and things like that, how are you gonna make sure that they know about both cultures, that um, one culture isn't forgotten or things like that. Um, so I'm American, he's Jamaican. I value that aspect. And so um, mm -hmm. 
our oldest son, you know, we want to make sure that he doesn't forget the Jamaican culture, that he remembers how to speak the language. And for our three-year-old that we have together, we want to make sure that he learns the culture. So mm -hmm. I told him, it's almost like the way we put children in emergent schools. I need you to immerse him in Patois so he knows the language. So when we go visit, he can talk to Grandpa Ricky and, you know, things like that. Yes. Like he's able to engage because he's no different. He's half of that culture and he needs to be able to know it and respect it and, and to be able to participate in it. Yeah. Um, I want to learn it in the same aspect just because um, it is becoming who we are. And so mm -hmm. I won't forget the cultural things that represent me as an American, but I want to make sure those things are blended. I say you have to ultimately have patience. It's going to take <laughs> a lot of patience because you won't always agree. You won't always see uh, the things the same culturally, but if you can be patient and always have that open communication, be willing to learn, then I think you can blend your family together. I think you can make the marriage work. I think you can raise the children just the same and um, have the kind of family or the environment that you wanna have. Wow, that's amazing. Bianca, what advice do you give in addition can to I, all can that? I say, uh, can I say ditto? <laughs> ditto. <laughs> Listen, Listen, what she said. It all. <laughs> I, I really like what Rachelle said about creating a new culture because absolutely, again, I, absolutely. you know, Yes. And we're still working on that. That's the thing that I'm constantly like, okay, how can we build a new culture for our family? This is you. This is me. What is going to be us and not what's determined by the cultural norms? Like what's the norm for black people in America? What's the norm for black people in Jamaica? What do everybody else do? No, we are unique. What are we going we, to do? Yes. Mr. Rochelle, we're going to write a book after this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. That was that was one of the things that when we first got together, we was like communication one and two, we have to realize that we are creating and developing our own, we call it our own story. But I love that you, you place that term culture to it. And mm -hmm. we're going to have children that America and West Africa, Ghana is going to be both parts of them. And so how do we nurture both of those parts and make them appreciative of both of those Parts. And I just openly communicating, constantly communicating and sharing about those different cultures and what makes them beautiful, what makes them complex, being open to be humble and to yeah. learn and to unlearn some things and relearn yeah. some things. And, you know, I always say marriage is a ministry. So for those yeah. <laughs> of my, my sisters and brothers out there where faith is central, you know, praying together and making sure when you come into marriage, it's it's kind of like you're there to serve each other. Yes. And it's a hundred, a hundred, a hundred, right? People say 50-50, like it's hundred, a hundred. And so being open to serving and building together and communicating constantly and patience. Patience is key. Ooh. Patience was I, I come from I shared a, bit, a little bit earlier that my my grandmother and my aunts raised me. So they're mm -hmm. like alpha women from the Jim Crow South where they had to hold it down. They had a lot of, so I come from a, a, a family of strong women. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, we can hold it down. We gonna do, you know. And so I, I really had to humble myself and understand that my husband is not coming from an authoritative place or a place of where he's trying to rule me. But this is, 
this is part of the building of a marriage, right? So you don't just have a good marriage, you build a good marriage. And so there were some things that I had to work out within myself of just being humble and being patient. And so wow. Little to I, everything with no say. <laughs> wow. I, I, I mean, I have learned so much and some of which I knew because, you know, being raised here as a first generation immigrant, although my house was culturally homogeneous, I, I really appreciate how you all stressed that a new culture has to be made space for because I even realized even though my household was Kenyan entirely, we had to create space for new cultural norms just because we were living in a new place. Not that one of my parents was had a different culture or even tried from the other. They're the same tribe, same culture, everything. But there came a point where I think it came due to my dad's exposure in the service industry that he realized we are really missing out on a lot of the beauty of the American culture in an effort to mm-hmm. hold on so tight to our Kenyan culture at home. We were not doing a lot of American uh, activities. And so he realized we could be missing out on conversations and relationships. And while we, we, we preserved our Kenyan culture, he became more intentional about saying that we needed to ex- experience different um, American experiences. And so I also liked what you mentioned, Bianca, about intercultural relationships having a complex beauty. They are very complicated, but they're beautiful in those complications because that is what is building um, your bond, essentially, is through those challenges and overcoming them. And then I finally really loved serving one another 100%. You don't bring half of you to the table and they bring half or quarter of them to the table. It always almost requires you bring all of you. All of you. Yes. So I, I have really appreciated this and there's so much beauty and even the ministry part i think as a people historically we are very spiritual so a lot comes from the heart it's it's intuitive it's it's deep within us we are rarely a superficial people so our relationships can also be intense in that way because everybody wants to be spiritually in the mix and you know and vibe in all those complex ways so i am encouraged i i love intercultural relationships because <laughs> i'm a foodie i'm not gonna lie my motivations are totally selfish in food i just want to come to y'all's house and eat the food from whatever cultures are in that household Um, But thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you can come on the show another time. But for now, I thank you so much for what you've poured into our listeners. And I look forward to just seeing how both of your relationship blossoms. I mean, you guys are already cutting book deals. So um, (laughs) thanks for being here, ladies. And that's another episode of Pulsing Black. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.